Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilat. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is hosting this book forum this afternoon. We are here to mark the release of a new Cato book, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century America, which is available outside uh, for purchase. And the author will be happy to sign it for you if you purchase the book. Um, it is available at a discount, too, I might know. Um, property rights is very much in the news uh, and has been for the last year and a half almost, uh, ever since the uh, Kelo decision was handed down by the Supreme Court uh, at the end of the term just before this past term. The Kelo decision, as you would all doubtless know, uh, was one in which the um, Supreme Court upheld a uh, condemnation by the city of New London, Connecticut of several homes in connection with building an upscale um, residential um, commercial uh, development in the city uh, and the invocation of eminent domain uh, for purposes of economic development. And from that came the ringing dissent of Justice uh, O'Connor, who um, uh, had the misfortune of having been cited by the majority uh, for a case that she herself had written many years earlier in the Hawaii Midcalf case. But in any event, the admonition that came from that is that your house is no longer safe. It can be taken uh, and replaced by any uh, other property owned by a private owner that makes better use of it, provides greater tax benefits uh, to the community, and so on and so forth. And it led to a reaction, a firestorm, all across the country, uh, especially since the Institute for Justice, which uh, had litigated the case all the way to the Supreme Court. In fact, it was my first intern um, who did the litigation uh, for that. And uh, uh, he lost, but uh, it was a good experience for him. And um, <clears throat> the... Um, uh, the case, nevertheless, was promoted by the Institute for Justice and, uh, and was uh, uh, one that has led to a tremendous number of uh, states looking into the issue. At last count, when I checked, there were 29 states that had enacted either uh, constitutional amendments or um, uh, statutes to protect themselves or to protect the citizens against uh, the use of economic domain uh, for the purpose of economic development, of eminent domain, rather, for economic development. Well, these kinds of stories, as well as the regulatory taking stories, are the subject of Tim Sandifer's book. And they have led also to a number of uh, ballot initiatives uh, in the western states, especially, where you have the initiative and referendum process. Uh, Proposition 90 in California is one such uh, measure. Uh, just uh, this morning and yesterday morning, NPR uh, ran a couple of uh, uh, programs on these uh, propositions that are uh, before the voters in the West. And these usually include not simply the use of eminent domain for taking the entire property and paying the owner compensation, but the use of regulatory takings by regulators uh, whereby the property stays in the hands of the owner, the uses are taken, and the owner is left with sometimes a virtually useless piece of property on which, of course, he has to continue paying taxes, insurance, and so forth, uh, even as he receives no compensation for the losses he suffers. Well, 
here to discuss these issues in greater detail, uh, we have Tim Sandifer, and commenting after Tim is through discussing his book will be John Echevarria. Uh, Tim will go first and speak for about 20 or 25 minutes. Uh, then um, I will introduce um, John Echevarria. He will speak for 10 minutes or so, and Tim will respond for maybe five minutes, and then we will open it up to Q&A from the audience and have lunch afterward upstairs. Tim Sandifer is a staff attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where he's currently working to prevent the abuse of eminent domain. He also works on economic liberties issues. He is a graduate of Hillsdale College and of the Chapman University of School of Law. Uh, he's um, a lead attorney on PLF's Economic Liberty Project. Um, he um, uh, is a contributing editor to Liberty Magazine. He's written for many other publications as well, including the Cato Supreme Court Review, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, Independent Review, Regulation, The Humanist, American Enterprise, Washington Times, and others. He already, at a very young age, has a long list of publications. So please join me in welcoming Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much. Um, as, as Dr. Pawan said, the Kelo decision has sparked a nationwide outrage and a re reinvigoration of interest, I think, in the importance of private property rights and their position in the American Constitution. Um, just to, to basically recap what Kelo is about, I'm sure that you all got your Cato constitutions, and you know that in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, it says that the government can take private property for public use when it pays just compensation. Those are the two requirements. It has to be for public use, and the government has to pay just compensation. So what's a public use? Does anybody here know what a public use is? Anybody? Airport. Airport. Anything else? School. Roads. There's lots of answers, right? But we do know one certain thing, and that is it's not a private use, right? That's the one thing that's clear about the Fifth Amendment is that the government can't take property for a private use. Well, until Kelo. Uh, to understand why the Fifth Amendment says this, we have to t kind of take a step back and, and think about government in the way that the founders thought about it. See, a lot of people today, I think, they, seem, they assume that government essentially just is, that it just exists as a natural feature of our landscape, like gravity or something. But that's not the way that the founders thought. The founders thought government existed to do certain things, to accomplish certain ends. And to figure out what those ends were, they tried to imagine what the world would be like without government. And this is called the state of nature. Now, there's a political philosopher named Thomas Hobbes who is, was, was a pioneer in this kind of theory. And Hobbes says, if you imagine what the world would be like without government in a state of nature, people would go around beating each other up and taking away their things. That's what the world would be like. And this, this life would be so miserable that people would hate it and they would finally get together and create a government to protect them from each other and, and that's where we get government from. But what's interesting about Hobbes is he, he says it's true that in a state of nature people would beat people up and take away their things, but this would be perfectly okay, he says. Because without a government, without an, an authority to act as a lawmaker, there's no such thing as justice. So there's no reason to say that it's unjust in a state of nature for people, to, bullies, to go around beating people up and taking away their things. And so he says, you have a right in a state of nature to anything that you can take from somebody. 
that's your right. Your right is is the same thing as as your ability to enforce your rights with your, with the sword. And he says there can be no propriety in the state of nature, no mine and thine distinct, but that is every man's that he can get, and only for so long as he can keep it. Which I submit to you is a good description of property rights in America after Kilo. <laughs> But that's basically the, Hobbes' idea. We, we, we live in a world with no natural justice, and so we experience misery and, and abuse. And so we get together and create a government to protect us from, ourse- from ourselves, really. And so, therefore, what government says is justice. Any order that is adopted by the lawmakers is just. Now, John Locke, who came about you know, several, uh, a century later... John Locke said, well, it's true that in a state of nature, without a government, people go around beating each other up and taking away their things. But this would be wrong. It would violate the law of nature, which is the law of reason, which teaches us that we shouldn't beat people up and take away their things. And since you don't have the right to beat people up and take away their things in a state of nature, you don't have a right to ask somebody else to beat somebody up for you and take away their stuff on your behalf. And so when you create a government, you have no right to ask the government to beat somebody up and take away their things for you. See, Government, in Locke's view, and in the view of the founders who followed Locke, such as James Madison, government is sort of like a bank guard. Suppose you own a bank, and you, you know, you're afraid you're going to get robbed. So you hire a guard, and you give him a badge and a gun, and he stands in your, the corner of your bank, and he makes sure that you don't get robbed. That's great. Perfect solution. Except there's one problem, right? Now you've got a guy with a gun in your bank. And he could take out the gun and rob the bank if he wanted to. So what Madison explains then is we need to create a government in which the bank guard will not have the incentive or the ability to rob the bank himself. You must first create a government capable of, of, of controlling the people uh, in their attempts to abuse one another, but also capable of controlling itself. And the problem, Madison explains, in, federal, in the Federalists, particularly 10 and 51, the problem that with an, a popularly elected government is what he calls the problem of faction. And that is, groups within the society are going to try their best to take over the power of government and use it for their own benefit at the expense of society at large or at the expense of other competing groups. And people are, today call this the problem of rent-seeking or the problem of, of public choice which is basically as long as the government has the power to take away resources or opportunities from some people and give them to other people, it becomes in the interests of everybody in society to work as hard as they can to get the government to do that for them. Right? If the government is capable of giving you this wealth, you're going to invest your time and energy in trying to convince the government to do that for you. Well, that's the problem of faction that Madison ex- describes in the Federalist Papers. Now, an important thing about faction that I think a lot of people tend to overlook when they read The Federalist is Madison does not say that a faction is just some private interest group. A faction can be a majority as well as a minority. He says, by a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a minority or a majority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens. And so what you need to do is create a government that will not be subject to the problem of factions taking over the power of the government at the, and at the expense of the rights of other citizens redistributing wealth to themselves. Another big problem with an elected government, Madison says, is the people are themselves the judges of the legitimacy of their own laws, right? The people, they have a, they, they have a legislature. 
they enact a law, okay, and this law robs you of some right. You go to court and you say, this law is unconstitutional, violates my rights. The judge is appointed indirectly by the people. See? So the people become the judge in their own case, which Madison says violates natural law. So what you've got to do is try and create a government that will avoid these kinds of pressures. And one of them is, of course, the checks and balances system. Another is an indep- as independent a judiciary as is possible, consistent with Republican theory. And, of course, the Bill of Rights that will limit in an absolute sense the power of the government. And one of those elements in the Bill of Rights, of course, is the public use clause, which reflects the view that government doesn't have the authority to take property from some people and give it to others for their own private welfare. And that's why in 1824, in Wilkinson versus Leland, the Supreme Court of the United States said, we know of no case in which the power of government to take property from A to B has ever been held to be a legitimate exercise of power in any state of the Union. That was a long time ago. So how did we get to the present state? Basically, the answer is the progressive era. The the progressive movement was an intellectual movement that began sometime in the 1880s or so, and according to some historians, petered out in the 1920s, but in reality uh, is extended to the present day, and we still live within the progressive era. Progressives had really... Well, they had a lot of of ideas, but important for us, they had four basically important ideas about how the Constitution should be changed, how the the workings of America should be changed. The first one was, this talk of natural rights is nonsense. There's no such thing as natural rights. Rights are given to you by government. Rights are really permissions that society creates and gives to you for society's own benefit. And, of course, if you, you know, if if society decides it's not in, in society's interests... Society can come and take that right away from you. Okay, a good example of this, of course, would be uh, uh, Justice Holmes's dissenting opinion in Abrams versus United States. A lot of people read Holmes's opinion in that case, and they say, "Well, Holmes was a great defender of free speech." It's nonsense. If you read Justice Holmes's dissent in Abrams versus United States, one of the first lines in it is, "Persecution seems perfectly logical to me." He then goes on to explain, but we don't persecute people because it's good for society sometimes to have a robust debate, and so we give minorities permission to argue against majorities, and that way we can learn sometimes. And so it's really society's interest to give people this permission, but there's no such thing as a right to free speech. See, there's no natural rights at all. The second big important progressive idea was that government doesn't exist to protect our rights, which, again, don't exist. But it exists to shape the kind of society that we want to live in. It exists to make our neighborhoods nice and to make society good. That's what government exists to do. And so in the pursuit of this vision, the progressives adopted a vast array of governmental programs for changing society. Uh, Eugenics programs. Uh, public schooling. Mandatory public schooling. In fact, in one uh, case, they attempted to prohibit private schooling. Supreme Court said you couldn't do that, but uh, progressive income taxation, peacetime military draft, the Federal Reserve Program, uh, prohibition, even the flag salute was a progressive idea, uh, which was adopted in order to inculcate a sense of self-sacrifice and servitude to the nation on the behalf of children 
and, and to breed out of them the independent spirit that had been taught to them by previous generations. In fact, some of you are, might remember that originally the flag salute was said with the hand extended toward the flag in what's now called the Nazi salute. Um, you know, that, that went away when it became unfashionable, but that was the way the progressives originally required the Ple- Pledge of Allegiance to be said. Another, another thing, in, in addition to shaping the kind of society that we want to live in, were two other interrelated ideas. One was the idea of the living constitution. Well, the constitution can be bent and stretched to meet the needs of society that change over time. And uh, the re- fourth idea that was closely related to that was the idea of judicial deference. The idea that when the legislature decides to trample on your rights, courts should do nothing about it which is unfortunately very popular with many of our conservative friends, but is really basically a progressive idea for allowing legislatures to run roughshod over individual rights. Probably the greatest example of judicial deference would be Buck versus Bell, a Supreme Court decision again written by Justice Holmes, which held that it was perfectly okay for the state of Virginia to forcibly sterilize women without their consent. Carrie uh, Buck was declared uh, uh, to be retarded, uh, I, apparently she wasn't, in fact, so I've heard. But in any case, the state of Virginia decided she was retarded and therefore should not be able to propagate and spread retardation throughout society. So for the benefit of society, we will force her to undergo a sterilization operation. And she sued and said this violated her right to liberty under the 14th Amendment, that due process of law. And the Supreme Court held that was perfectly all right. And Justice Holmes, in fact, is famous for a line in that case where he said, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Justice Holmes, by the way, is probably the most revered of all modern Supreme Court uh, justices in the legal profession. It's very hard to describe to people who are outside of it just how far left the legal profession really is. Anyway, so those are the four basic progressive ideas. The, the rights are permissions, the government exists to shape the kind of society we want to live in, that the Constitution can be changed or that its meaning changes with time and that courts should stand back and not interfere. And so accordingly, during the Progressive Era, it was the time we first see the word blight applied to neighborhoods and we start seeing government using its regulatory power and its eminent domain powers to accomplish a vast array of new programs. Uh, Zoning, for example, was more or less devised in the Progressive Era as a way of keeping racial minorities out of white neighborhoods. Now, you know, of course, that's not what it's used for today, right? Wink, wink. But that was originally what it was used for. There's some wonderful articles by Professor Eric Clays who, who discusses the, the racial origins of zoning law. Um, and, of course, eminent domain was vastly expanded during this, pow- during this time. Uh, it all really comes, gets summed up by Justice Louis Brandeis, a progressive hero, who said, In the interest of the public and in order to preserve the liberty and property of the great majority of the citizens of a state, rights of property and the liberty of the individual must be remolded from time to time to meet the changing needs of society. I love that word remolded. Such a nice euphemism for totally taken away. We're not... The, the cop didn't violate your rights when he beat you over the head with his baton. He was just remolding your rights. <laughs> See, Ms. Suzette Kilo's house wasn't stolen from her by the government. Her property rights were simply remolded to meet the changing needs of society. So the Supreme, or so the California Supreme Court in 1913 declared that anything calculated to promote the education, the recreation, or the pleasure of the public 
is to be included within the legitimate domain of public purposes to be served by eminent domain. Well, now, the progressives generally were writing in dissent at, the t- at that time. Uh, Holmes and Brandeis were usually writing dissenting opinions uh, in these more controversial cases. But by, by the 1930s, these views had, become, had come to prevail in the American legal community. And in 1934, in Nebia v. New York, the Supreme Court of the United States transformed progressivism into the prevailing law of the United States, which it still is today. In Nebia, Nebia is one of my favorite cases. Um, Nebia was a case in which the Supreme Court said it was okay for the state of New York to make it illegal for poor mothers to buy cheap milk for their babies. Uh, the state of New York, see, let's suppose that you're running the economy of New York during the Depression, and let's suppose you're an idiot, but I repeat myself. Uh, see, the problem with, with the economy in New York during the Depression is we allow people to charge what they want. If they charge what they want, they'll get into competition, right? They'll start undercutting each other, and eventually the price of milk will reach zero, and then all the dairies will go out of business, and you won't have any more milk in New York. It's brilliant. So what we'll do is we'll make cheap milk illegal. And so they made it illegal to charge less than eight cents a quart for milk. Mr. Nebbia charged less than eight cents a quart for milk, and he went to jail. Supreme Court of the United States said that was perfectly all right, and they invented what's called the rational basis test, which says that when the government wants to violate your private property rights or your economic freedom, it can do so as long as what it's doing is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. It's a very important phrase. It's a, it's a common term in the law for, for the rational basis test that is applied to economic rights. Other kinds of rights get higher standards of scrutiny, but when it comes to economic rights like private property that actually are mentioned in the Constitution, those don't get very much scrutiny. They get the rational basis test. Anything rationally related to a legitimate government interest. Now, as, as Clint Bullock, my hero, is fond of saying, the two things you need to know about the rational basis test is it doesn't need to be rational, and it doesn't need to be the basis. Okay. Basically, if a non-drunk person could have voted for the law, it passes that test. And that was, that was the, the test that was adopted in 1934. Twenty years later, that test is first applied to eminent domain in Berman versus Parker in a unanimous Supreme Court decision that said it was perfectly all right to steal the property of dozens, if not hundreds, of black families in Washington, D.C. and transfer it to other private property owners to build shopping centers and so forth. Uh, Justice, William du- Justice William Douglas wrote the opinion in that case. Uh, in which he said that when the legislature has spoken as to what is a public purpose, that decision is well-nigh conclusive, which means judicial deference, right? Basic progressivism. When the legislature decides to violate your rights, the courts will look the other way. They'll shield their eyes and look the other way. That's what, I guess that's what justice being blind means to them. Okay. So then 30 years later, we get uh, Hawaii Housing versus Midkiff. Uh, in 1984, where the Supreme Court again unanimously held that it was okay for the state of Hawaii. See, Midkiff is another favorite case of mine. Okay, so here's the situation. What we've got, half of the entire land mass of Hawaii is owned by the government. So we'll take that off the table. And now we've got a land shortage in Hawaii. I wonder why. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we'll pass a law that says if you're renting property... You can go to the government and ask the government to condemn the property from your landlord and sell it to you at rock-bottom prices. Brilliant idea, right? So, you know, beachfront property in Hawaii is pennies on the dollar. This law, by the way, which was, again, unanimously upheld, is still on the books. And there was a case just last year in which uh, these, property, these, these renters got together and they went to the city and they said, please condemn our, please steal our landlord's property. And they've got this, 
They've got this all formalized in Hawaii, you see. They've got forms. You fill out your form. Dear city council, please steal my landlord's property and give it to me. And you sign it, and you put your little filing fee, and you turn it in at the county clerk. And the clerk takes it in there. And it takes a while for this to go on, for, for the paperwork to be processed. And while the paperwork's being processed, the city council gets together. And they say, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. We shouldn't do this sort of thing anymore. So the tenants filed a lawsuit against the city for breach of contract. So fortunately, that case was dismissed. Anyway, then we get to Kilo. And Kilo is basically, is, is your basic progressive Supreme Court decision. It says, when the government decides to take your property away, as long as it's good for society, in whose opinion? The legislature's opinion. As long as the legislature thinks it's good for society, we'll let it go. And we will close our eyes and look the other way. Because your rights are just permissions. The government exists to create a nice society. The Constitution can accommodate virtually anything when it comes to property rights. And courts will look the other way. So I think the contrast can be summed up very well by two cases separated by almost exactly 150 years. In Wilkins versus Leland, as I mentioned, the court said we know of no case in which property can be transferred from A to B. In Penn Central, however, in the 1970s, the Supreme Court said that the government doesn't even have to compensate you most of the time when it takes away your property to, quote, adjust the benefits and burdens of economic life, end quote. Where does the power to adjust benefits and burdens of economic life appear in the Constitution? In any case, uh, you can see there the, the, the change that the progressives wrought. I want to quickly go over what has happened since Kelo. Since Kelo was decided, there are about 25 or 26 new state laws enacted to protect private property rights. Of these, approximately half of them, probably a, few, a little more than half of them, are frauds, designed for no other reason than to fool the voters into thinking that politicians care when they don't. Uh, among these would be Alabama's new law, which says that the, the government cannot take private property and transfer it to a private party. Okay cannot take property under a pretext for giving it to a private party, which is nice, except Kilo already says that. But it can take property whenever it's declared blighted. And what's the definition of blight in Alabama? Areas including, but not necessarily, slum areas, with buildings or improvements which, by reason of dilapidation, obsolescence, overcrowding, faulty arrangement or design, lack of ventilation, light and sanitary facilities, excessive land coverage, deleterious land use, or obsolete layout, or any combination of these or other factors are detrimental to the safety, health, morals, or welfare of the community. In whose opinion? The legislature. And what does the court do? It looks the other way. So the Alabama law allows virtually any property in Alabama to be declared blighted, condemned, transferred to Costco or Walmart or Ikea or Home Depot. So the Alabama law accomplishes virtually nothing. The good laws that have passed that really do protect private property rights significantly are in Florida, Georgia, Indiana, South Dakota, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Among other things, these laws very carefully define what blight really is, laying out very strict rules and requiring the government to prove that all of these things are present before property can be declared blighted. Uh, in Florida, the law says you cannot take property even to eliminate blight, which is easily the most strong law we've seen passed. But the day before Governor Jeb Bush signed that bill, 
The city of Riviera Beach, Florida, held a special city council meeting in which they passed an ordinance uh, allowing them to condemn 400 acres of land in the city and transfer it to a private developer uh, for development. And I'm proud to say that Pacific Legal Foundation has filed a lawsuit against the city uh, in defense of several of the property owners there. We've also, we also have a case pending right now in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, called uh, City of Freeport versus uh, Western Seafood, which will be decided probably very soon, which is probably the, first, the next big eminent domain case after Kelo. And, of course, the Ohio Supreme Court in July declared in a resounding victory for private property rights that government cannot take private property uh, and transfer it to private developers. In California, we've seen literally nothing done. Uh, Governor Schwar- Does anybody remember what Governor Schwarzenegger of California said after the Kelo decision was announced? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's been over a year and he said not a single word in public about eminent domain. Uh, does anybody remember what President Bush said about, about the Kelo case? What, what he said in his brief in the Kelo case? Nothing. President Bush didn't think it was important enough to file a brief in the Kelo case. In fact, uh, it took everything that every, every uh, effort on behalf of property owners to convince the Bush administration not to file a brief against the property owners in the Kelo case. So, unfortunately, there's been a real shortfall in leadership. Um, there's a proposition now in several states, including California, that would eliminate uh, the use of eminent domain for private uh, benefits, which also includes a provision requiring compensation for regulatory takings. Now, I think, unfortunately, this is going to be a, a debate that's going to, to cause a lot of confusion in California and in other states. Regulatory takings is essentially the same thing as eminent domain. It's the government confiscating your property for some pub- allegedly public benefit. Except that in regulatory takings, you don't get compensated for it. Uh, almost never. Under some, in some extreme cases, you get compensation. But um, it, essentially, the, the, this is the same thing, the government coming in and taking away your property for some public use and, uh, and not compensating you for it. And I, it, it's, it seems silly to me to be dividing these two issues, but unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that. Basically, I think what it comes down to is this. We need... We who believe in private property rights need to challenge Kelo and these, and these regulatory takings issues not on the basis of particular policies, but on the basis of philosophy. We need to forthrightly challenge the progressive assault on the Constitution of the United States. If we fail to do that, I think we, we have sold ourselves out as far as the Constitution and the promise of our founding fathers is concerned. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, Tim. Now to um, defend the pernicious practices that uh, Tim has just condemned, uh, we're fortunate to have with us uh, John Echevarria, who is not here at the Cato Institute for the first time. He is a frequent foil that we um, invite, and he is gracious enough to um, accept our invitations, and we're very pleased to have him with us. Um, he's the executive director of the Georgetown Environmental uh, Law and Policy Institute, uh, Georgetown Law Center, which conducts research and education on legal and policy issues related to the protection of the environment and conservation of natural resources. He's a graduate of Yale uh, Law School in the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He's the former general counsel of the National Audubon Society, the former general counsel of the conservation director um, of um, American Rivers uh, Inc- Incorporated. 
Uh, he served as a clerk to the Honorable Gerhard Gazelle in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. He's written extensively on takings issues in various uh, aspects of environmental and natural resource law. Uh, he frequently represents state and local governments, environmental organizations, and planning organizations and other regulatory takings cases at all levels of the federal and state court systems. And along with Professor Thomas Merrill at Columbia Law School, he filed a brief in the Kelo case on behalf of the American Planning Association and the Congress for Community Economic Development. Please welcome John Echevarria. Thank you, Roger. Thank you for the kind invitation. The reason I get invited back is I work only four blocks down the street, and it's just you know, I'm the first one who comes to mind, and so it's, it's easier that way. Um, it seems to me that the property rights movement is, an, is at an interesting juncture today, and I say that for two reasons. The first is that the two titans uh, in the property rights debate today are both on the right side of the political spectrum, and both happen to be from New York City. On the one hand, we have Michael Blumberg, the billionaire mayor of New York City, who stands sort of like Horatio at the bridge, virtually single-handedly blocking one-size-fits-all federal eminent domain legislation uh, in Congress, which he describes as a threat to New York City's continued economic health. On the other hand, we have Harry Rich, also of Manhattan, a longtime supporter of this organization and other libertarian groups, pouring millions, literally millions of dollars, into the property rights ballot measures, particularly in the western United States. While these ballot measures purport to be about eminent domain, in fact, they represent totally anemic, if not fraudulent, eminent domain. Inside these measures, but scarcely advertised, are quite different provisions that would require taxpayers to pay developers and resource industries to obey the most basic land use laws. To find out more about these Trojan horse measures, I urge you to look at the provocatively named website, HowieRichExposed.com. So that's my introductory point, that uh, who would have thought that New York City would be ground zero on the takings issue in 2006? Um, the second introductory point I wanted to make is, is who would think that it would make sense uh, to put a home uh, on the cover of a book about the property rights agenda? Now, the hysteria surrounding the Kelo decision, of course, provides the opening for this audacious move in book design. But the reality, as Roger Pallon and I have discussed many times, is that the property rights agenda described inside Tim's book is an assault on the American homeowner. The libertarian philosophy Tim advocates represent a threat to virtually all homeowners in America who rely on zoning and other environmental laws and regulations to defend their neighborhoods and to defend the values in their homes. Now, before I get too deep into this, I want to say that I enjoyed uh, reading, reading Tim's book. Um, it's extraordinarily well-written, even though I disagree with just about every word, which, of course, why I was invited here. I admire Tim's uh, energy and enthusiasm. I admire his work so much that we've invited him to speak at the takings conference that I'm organizing uh, next month in California on October 26 and 27. And I urge you, if you want to attend a fair and balanced regulatory takings conference, <laughs> to attend. Uh, Tim and I will both be speaking. Um, I've also taken the liberty of putting out on the uh, desk outside a copy of our new report called Kilo's Unanswered Questions. I know from reading Tim's book that he hates anything that could be characterized as a balanced approach to any issue. 
Uh, but this is forthrightly a balanced uh, assessment of the eminent domain question uh, and possible solutions. Uh, and finally, I put in the back there some um, uh, uh, reproductions of a newspaper article that appeared in Ohio newspaper uh, on the Ohio Supreme Court case that Tim referred to. Um, it's, a, it's a marvelous series that, that shows how, upon deeper examination, uh, the eminent domain issue can look a lot different than it may first appear. Now, I thought I could uh, usefully contribute to this debate by making four very quick comments on Tim's bro book. Um, What I find one of the more remarkable suggestions in the book is the notion that the property rights agenda has been the friend of the African America, American. Now, while I recognize the political motivation behind this suggestion, the reality is that the private property agenda has supported, has supported subjugation of and discrimination against African Americans from the beginning of our history. As Professor Trainer explained in his landmark article in the Columbia Law Review, Madison included in the takings clause in the Bill of Rights was largely out of concern about the property rights of Southern slaveholders. Now, thankfully, of course, the constitutional revolution of the Civil Rights era repudiated this understanding of the takings clause, but the idea lives on, for example, in the heart of Atlanta motel case of the 1960s, in which the motel owner challenged the public accommodations provisions of the Civil Rights Act as a taking of private property. Now, of course, the Supreme Court rejected the takings claim in the heart of Atlanta Motel, uh, but who knows if that ruling would survive the Pacific Legal Foundation's expansive interpretation of the takings clause if it were ever accepted by the courts. Thir secondly, Tim, Tim acknowledges the failures of the property rights movement in the Rehnquist Court, but I think he fails to acknowledge the extent of the route experienced by the property rights movement and, more importantly, the reasons for the route. In that connection, I think it is noteworthy that, that Tim's book fails, so far as I can tell, except in one solitary footnote to acknowledge Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's 2005 opinion for unanimous court in Lingle versus Chevron USA. Justice John Paul Stevens recently described the opinion accurately, in my view, as lucid and honest, and quote, if not the very best, surely one of the best opinions announced last term. In that case, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court repudiated the substantially advances takings test. But more fundamentally, much more fundamentally, the court rejected the notion that the takings clause, any more than the due process clause, provides an excuse for routine judicial second-guessing of legislative judgments. Lingle, it seems to me, demonstrates why the takings agenda has failed in the Supreme Court. That is that the takings agenda depends on a highly activist conception of the judicial role, an approach that this court has not embraced and will not embrace, and that will not change under Chief Justice John Roberts. I enjoyed the comment of Eric Grant, an a, a alumnus of the Pacific Legal Foundation, whose comment on the Lingle decision was it's, it was unanimous. There was not even a fig leaf uh, for the property rights side in that case. The third brief I have in this book is the unexamined premise that regulations on the use of private property invariably reduce property values, justifying taxpayer payments to those subject to regulation. As a matter of economic fact, and this is documented in numerous empirical studies, regulations apply broadly across the community, sometimes even quite stringent regulations support and often increase property values. Now, the reason for this is that regulations may restrict the use of my property but they restrict the use of, neighbors, of my neighbor's property, protecting me from harmful uses, creating what the Supreme Court has called a reciprocity of advantage. To 
provide one empirical example from Oregon, which has been in the news recently. We looked at agricultural land values in that state from 1965, before Oregon implemented its stringent land use controls, until 2005, and then compared that data to trends in agricultural land values in the neighboring states of Washington, Idaho, and California. And the remarkable fact is, contrary to the premise uh, in Tim's book, is that Oregon, which had the most stringent regulations, experienced the fastest appreciation in per acre agricultural land values uh, over those four, that 40-year period. In light of these kinds of facts, demands for quote-unquote compensation for regulatory restrictions are nothing more than demands for unfair windfalls at taxpayer expense. And this brings me to my last point, uh, which is that I think Tim goes awry in claiming that the property rights agenda would do away with special interest, with special interest rent-seeking. In my view, in my experience, the takings agenda represents the worst kind of rent-seeking in the American political process. For the reasons just discussed, the regulatory takings agenda represents an unfair effort to soak the, the taxpayer, for landowners to, to reap unfair windfalls. To make matters worse, the property rights agenda, while single-mindedly focused on those restricted by regulations, ignores those property owners downhill downriver and downwind who are sometimes harmed by development. Representative Richard Pombo, to his credit, standing at this very podium a few years ago, acknowledged that intellectual consistency, his phrase, required that application of the techings agenda work both ways, that those restricted uh, by regulations um, receive compensation, and if that were the policy, then homeowners who are harmed by development activities should likewise be entitled to compensation. But sadly, the Republican majority has never put that quote-unquote intellectually consistent plan into action, and sadly, Tim's book offers little hope that we'll see any greater intellectual consistency on that score. You've been a gracious and patient audience, and Roger, for the first time in my experience, hasn't cut me off before the end of my presentation. And I thank you, and I look forward to the, to the back and forth. Thank you. cut you off, John, because you had the good sense to come in on time. Um, now we're going to let Tim respond for no more than five minutes, and we're going to then open it up to Q&A from you folks. Wow, five minutes. I'm a lawyer. I can't sign my name in five minutes. Uh, I, first of all, I think it's really silly to say that there's been any attempt to disguise the regulatory takings provision in Proposition 90 and similar initiatives sponsored by, by Mr. Rich. There's been no attempt to, to hide that fact. In fact, it's been trumpeted in just about every article I've seen on the issue. Uh, and the property rights movement and Mr. Rich have been quite forthright about the fact that, that this would require compensation for the sneaky and unfair form of stealing people's property in the form of regulatory takings, as well as the more honest and above-board form of eminent domain. Uh, as for hysteria, I think it's easy to say that somebody else's reaction is, is hysterical when your property is not being threatened. But the fact is that in the five years between 1998 and 2003, there were 10,000 reported cases of eminent domain being used or threatened against private property owners for the benefit of private developers. That's awfully good grounds for hysteria. Uh, it is true, however, that homes are less often... Abu uh, the, the, the targets of eminent domain abuse than small businesses. Small businesses are, uh, tend to be the most often, uh, the most common uh, victims of eminent domain abuse, and in fact, that's why the Small Business Survival Committee and uh, the National Federation of Independent Business made eminent domain abuse their number one issue for this year. 
uh, just very quickly, as for, for property and, and discrimination, uh, it's ridiculous to say that the takings clause was added as an afterthought to protect the rights of slave owners. There's absolutely no evidence to support that conclusion, just none. Uh, and it's not true that, sla- that the civil rights agenda eliminated that understanding of the takings clause. Slavery was eliminated in the 1860s. Um, however, as to whether minorities are protected by private property rights, the problem with the rent-seeking situation that is exacerbated by the broad reading in Kilo is that political and racial minorities are always at a disadvantage, well, not always, but virtually always at a disadvantage when it comes to the rent-seeking problem. What, what happens with a, uh, a, a great deal of deference in these kinds of cases is the government, the legislature, gets away with virtually anything it wants. Well, who controls the legislature? It's rarely poor members of minority groups. Usually, it's wealthy white folk. And wealthy white folk tend to be less often the victims of eminent domain abuse. So the idea that, that restoring serious protection for property rights will somehow harm racial minorities, uh, I think, flies in the face of history. We know from the Berman case, 97% of the property owners in Berman whose, whose property was taken from them were black. Uh, and you routinely see racial minorities coming in on the losing end of these cases. Uh, as for the failure of the property rights movement in Lingle, uh, Lingle is a bit of a complicated case. As I understand Lingle, the court said that the due process clause is an appropriate vehicle for bringing challenges to regulations that limit the use of private property. Um, of course, I was disappointed by Lingle, but as Stephen Eagle has shown, there is reason for the property rights movement to find hope in, in the Lingle decision. Uh, with regard to givings, it's, tr- it's true that it, there are cases, I suppose, in which regulations increase the value of property uh, rather than decreasing it. And, you know, where there's no harm, there's no foul. And, and you're right. If the government does create value in property, which I, I, ver- I very highly doubt, uh, then that would be an implicit in-kind compensation, as, as Professor Epstein has put it, uh, and would require no compensation. Um, but as for soaking the taxpayer... You know, this, is, this seems to be the only argument that the, the anti-property rights agenda can come up with, that, that well, if you, if you pass these regulatory takings compensation initiatives, it'll increase taxes. They don't honestly and openly defend the regulatory welfare state and say it's good for us to tell people what to do with their land and prohibit them from constructing homes and businesses on their land. They say, well, it'll soak the taxpayer. These costs are already being borne by somebody. They're being borne by the individual property owners who have to pay the cost of the regulatory taking of their property. The simple question is, is that fair? Or should the public, which benefits from these takings, have to pay for those benefits in a fair form through just compensation? And the answer is obviously yes. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. All right. Now, would you please um, raise your hand if you have a question and wait for the microphone to come to you. Identify yourself and any affiliation you may have, and please uh, direct, say who your question is directed to. Right here. My name is... Is this on? Yes. My name is Mark Birnbaum. I live in Bethesda, Maryland. I also have uh, my childhood home in a suburb of Kansas City. I divide my time between the two places. I have two points or comments or questions that I want to ask about. One is there's a phenomenon going on that is is a, a, a problem for property owners that's below the level of kilo, which is code enforcement or neatness police. There's a 
a phenomenon going on in this area called hoarding task forces, where a local government descends on a person who's a pack rat and locks him out of his home on the theory that they're protecting him from himself. Uh, that they condemn his his home as a not fit for human habitation situation. Um, that's happening in this area. In my area, in in Kansas City, there's a bench warrant out for me because um, uh, I was cited for junk in my backyard. Okay, and I don't know how to deal with that yet. It's not the first time uh, I have a history with the city. These are these are problems that that individual landowners have to face dealing with their adversary, their government. Uh, and, and anybody who wants to give me some ideas, I'd be happy to listen. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, on the kilo concept of, of taking, um, if you're a, a landowner and, and government comes after you wanting to take your land, you are in a state of nature. And what you said, Mr. Sandifer said about the concept of if you can keep it, um, suggests that that you can't you can't afford to hope that lawyers will save you. The, all these concepts I've heard have been legal abstraction concepts. There's another way to go about this, which is arises from from the Doctor Strangelove notion of a doomsday machine. Okay. If, if I have land, I go and get some lead, metallic lead. I grind it into powder. I put it in 20 baggies. I bury them on my property. I put stakes above five of them. I call the government and I say, you want my land? I want you to be aware that I've poisoned it with lead. Why don't you come and take soil samples to convince yourself that I'm telling the truth and then think about the... The, feasible, the economic feasibility of the private developer project that you want to take my land and give it to and see if it still makes sense figuring in the, the costs of abating the lead that I've put on my land in order to improve it, improve its value from my perspective and decrement its value from your perspective. Okay. Um, do you have any advice uh, for Mr. Birnbaum, short of a yard sale? <laughs> well, I, I'll just say that um, it, anytime the government has the authority to, to, to use, its, use force, that authority can be abused. And we have seen cases, there was a case called Armendariz versus Penman in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where the property owners accused the city, I believe it was San Bernardino, of, uh, of wrongly enforcing its, uh, its health and safety laws in an effort to to eventually take the property. And there's no doubt that that does occur in, in many cases. Unfortunately, it's very hard to prove that because the government is, does have the legitimate power to protect the public from the abusive or misuse of property uh, in, in a way that harms other people. And a, a point that Professor Echeverria mentioned that, well, what if a person is harmed by development? Of course, that's what nuisance law is for. And of course, under current law, people who are actually harmed by development are entitled to compensation and can, and receive it by going to the courthouse and filing a lawsuit when they're harmed by their neighbor's use of property. Of course, this was a case of harming oneself. It's paternalism more than it is. Laura, could you wait for the uh, for the microphone, please? Laura Peterson, an attorney in Washington. Uh, do either of you of you have a comment on the recent Oregon 
Supreme Court decision, I believe, that applied to regulatory takings. More generally, um, when would each of you find a regulatory taking? What are your uh, criteria? And finally, a special question for Tim. Tim, I, I've only had a chance to skim your excellent book, but why did you apparently not devote more attention in the book to regulatory takings? Thank you. What is the, what is the Oregon decision you're referring to? Um, it was mentioned. I've only uh, read it in uh, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal in the last week or so. With respect to Prop 37, is it? I don't know. Is it, is it Prop 37 in Oregon? I can give you my, my very quick um, take on, on when a regulation amounts to a taking. Um, and um, uh, you know, as Tim recounts in his book, the Supreme Court has struggled with this issue and has been less clear than it should have been, although I think they're, I think particularly with the benefit of, of Lingle, which does, a lot of, does away with a lot of the uh, doctrinal underbrush, the Supreme Court is actually... Uh, beginning to get at what a, a, a regulatory takings is. I think as a matter of original understanding, and this is you know, from Stevens to Scalia, um, the founding fathers thought that a taking involved an actual physical invasion uh, or an appropriation, expropriation of title. Uh, and what the Lingle decision says is we are looking for regulatory actions that are the functional equivalent uh, of those kinds of impositions. Um, the the Penn Central analysis, which focuses on the owner's expectations, the character of the regulation, the economic impact, provide some more a more detailed framework for an, analyzing the issue. But I think the basic law and economics principle that underlines the court's regulatory takings doctrine is that because reciprocal advantages from regulations, and it's not simply that I'm subject to regula regulations involving wetlands and somebody else upstream is also subject to the same regulation, but that we live in a world in which a number of us are subject to different regulations, and we all enjoy a network of reciprocal benefits from all those different regulations. I very strongly believe in the progressive uh, uh, regulatory state and believe it raises all ships and increases uh, public welfare. And I think what the Supreme Court is saying that unless a regulation as applied to a particular individual. If you look at a particular individual and say, if you were allowed an exemption from the regulations, or if you're subject to the regulations, unless you're, you suffer, and, and if we look at that calculation, you could lose 50, 75% of your, the value of your property, but that's not really a reflection of what you've lost, because a large part of the, re the value of the property reflects the fact that you're seeking an exemption from the regulation, and everyone else in the community remains subject to the regulations and is conferring benefits on you. Given the extent and the pervasiveness of reciprocal regulations, I think what the court's takings doctrine reflects is the notion that we can't know, as a matter of fairness and justice, uh, whether or not a regulation so burdens an individual that amounts to an unconstitutional taking, unless the owner is effectively denied uh, all economic value of the property, looking at his claim in isolation. Tim, did you want to respond? Uh, it's true. Regulatory law is very complicated, and uh, I was assigned to write 150 pages and no more, and I already violated that, but uh, <laughs> I did my best. Um, 
I think that the argument that we are part of a network of reciprocal advantages and therefore almost never entitled to compensation for a regulation is a great excuse for abusing property owners. Uh, it's a great excuse for doing just about anything you want. And when a person complains about being uh, uh, deprived, you say, well, yes, but you benefit in some other way on some other day uh, by violating your neighbor's rights. And that's really the progressive vision. Um, why I... Um, about the Measure 37, or the Oregon Supreme Court decision, I've been out of town for the past week and not been reading the news. I've been enjoying my vacation, so I don't know if there's been one in the last week. If you're talking about Measure 37, the Oregon Supreme Court in February upheld the constitutionality of Measure 37, which requires compensation for many regulatory takings in Oregon. Uh, I think it was a very well-reasoned decision. Uh, basic, the decision below was patently absurd. In fact, in a law review article that I published about it, I called it uh, probably the most absurd argument ever heard in an American courtroom, uh, which was the idea that the, the power of the government to regulate land belongs to the legislature, and therefore the people, through an initiative, cannot limit that, which is astonishing. That's the idea that government has power instead of the people. And the Supreme Court of Oregon rightly said, no, this initiative is an exercise of the people's power, not a limitation on it. And that, I think, the, was, was very, uh, well, very well put. So I, I don't know if that answers all your questions. but I try. Well, The answer to your question, Laura, is this. The Penn Central test, the three-pronged test, is a nightmare that is a boon for every lawyer because, of course, you can have it mean anything you want it to mean. Well, simply put, the, government, the court has never compensated a property owner under the Penn Central test. Right. Secondly, the, the regulatory taking arises whenever a regulation takes a use that belongs to an owner without a compensating, equally compensating benefit. Uh, and it begins from the first taking, not from the last taking. That is to say, it doesn't uh, arise only when there is a wipeout, as under the Lucas case. It arises from the first use that is taken. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the jurisprudence the court has given us. The court has given us just the opposite. Only when the taking completely wipes out the person or involves a physical invasion or involves a absence of nexus under the Dolan Nolan standard do you have a regulatory taking and it is essentially 85 years of ad hoc regulatory takings jurisprudence that we're talking about here next question uh, up in the back there the, the woman in the back yes hi uh, Elaine Middleman and uh, attorney <laughs> hope that's not a bad word um I'm representing several property owners and merchants here in the District of Columbia. If you're all aware of the Skyland Shopping Center in Southeast, the D.C. Council passed this absurd Skyland law that takes the property by eminent domain, and we're in court about that. And it seems to me that the business owners in particular really are not going to get a fair shake because the Uniform Relocation Act apparently is what's supposed to be compensating them, and we've been working on that for now probably two years, and I have seen no progress in that getting any compensation. And even if they do, on its face, it's inadequate compensation, and if they have to relocate, nobody knows where they're going to relocate to. So these are people that have been there, and minorities and Koreans, et cetera, for, you know, years and years, and... I really don't know what's going to happen to them. I'm on the phone with them almost every day trying to console them, but it's very discouraging. Well, is this an action brought by the city for condemnation? Yes. And uh, has compensation been provided under this action? 
what I just got through saying, the Uniform Relocation Act, not well, no. The, the property owners, there have been offers made. Some of them accepted it. Some of them are in court, in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. The business owners that don't happen to own the land, they just own the business, that's still pending. There have been meetings and, you know, hand-holding, but nothing concrete has happened at all. I could just comment on Skyland Mall. I, I think it's a, just a model-use feminine domain. Um, I discussed it in some detail in our recent report. I've visited the site. I've met with a minority uh, community in the surrounding neighborhood that, that actively supports the project. Uh, Mayor Williams has made the use of eminent domain at Skyland Mall a centerpiece of his administration. He launched his campaign uh, by committing to redeveloping the area. Basically what you have is a, is a remarkably attractive, solid, middle-class, largely minority community uh, which has a terrible dump of a shopping center in the middle of it. And after, according to the local residents, despite decades of importuning from the local residents, the local ANC, the owners did nothing with the property. Uh, finally, um, in despair, the local residents went to the city, and as far as I can tell, with virtually unanimous community support, and said, pay them a fair value for their property, allow us to reassemble this very complicated, disaggregated parcel of property uh, so it can be comprehensively redeveloped and not be a blight on the community but an enormous asset. There's perhaps no greater, better illustration uh, how the minority uh, community uh, in the District of Columbia will be benefited by that particular use of eminent domain. Well, then you are calling for them to be compensated, is that right? The, the Constitution I, demands it I believe and, and it will provide it. I'm sure these... These landowners have been offered compensation, and if they're not happy with the offers, they will proceed in court. As Alex Kaczynski said in, in a recent interview in Reason Magazine, I don't understand what all this furor is about eminent domain because the Constitution provides for payment. And as Justice Scalia said in, in the Lucas case, what is property but the profits thereof? And if you are getting the profits, I understand this isn't a complete answer, but it is almost a complete answer to the question of, where is the violation of private property rights? Can I just say something? I, I don't. You omitted the business owners because I've argued in court that they should also get just compensation, not simply under the Uniform Relocation Act. But I, nobody seems to pay any attention to them. And I also don't agree that. I mean, I agree that shopping center is not a good-looking shopping center, but it's not correct that everybody's in favor of having it moved out and something else. But as far as I can tell, every church use... leader, every ANC commissioner, well, okay, every that's... resident I could find in the area. The Constitution exists to protect minorities against virtually unanimous opinion. That's why we have a Constitution. Okay. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't need one. If the majority was always right, why would... the Constitution does not exist to empower majorities. The Constitution exists to protect us from majorities. That's why we have it. So in, in a lot of these cases, you see virtually unanimous support. There was virtually unanimous support for the poll town taking in, the 19, in 1981, which condemned hundreds of acres of land and threw, threw out an, a blue-collar working-class community to build a GM factory to build Cadillacs. There was virtually unanimous support. All of the newspapers and everybody was in favor of it because it was good for, for creating jobs and everything. But, of course, the reason why we have a constitution is to ensure that the person whose property is taken has his rights protected. Now, it, it's true that the constitution requires compensation, but property owners are routinely undercompensated and cannot be compensated for certain kinds of value. That, that's just nonsense. The, the Norwood example, the Ohio Supreme Court case, uh, involved a handful of plaintiffs who challenged an eminent domain represented by the Institute for Justice claiming a violation of their constitutional rights. 
the newspaper article I put the, up there represents a thorough investigation of the actual facts. What they did, and it was a real public service, is they talked to every single landowner who was affected by the exercise of eminent domain. They went through the tax records and they said, how much did each person get paid for their property? What they found is that the landowners whose property was taken received premiums of 50, 100, 200% over, what, over the fair market value of the property. And then they interviewed each individual person. The overwhelming majority of those whose land was taken, never mind the, 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 the populace, never mind the school teachers and the, and the firemen who were hoping to keep their jobs if the community could stay on its feet, the people whose land was being taken were overwhelmingly supportive of the taking because it turned out that this was an opportunity for them to escape a deteriorating neighborhood. The Ohio Supreme Court had it right. That's not much of a legal standard. But the reality was it was a deteriorating neighborhood. It was enclosed by freeways, which had been constructed, thank you, by virtue of eminent domain, a kind of eminent domain that libertarians seem to accept. They were living in a deteriorated neighborhood. Eminent domain was their escape hatch. People took that money. They moved to better neighborhoods. And they are overwhelmingly pleased by the result. You can say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't follow the, the, the Institute for Justice storyline. But that's the reality on the ground in Norwood, Ohio. Why was the decision then unanimous? Well, they fell for the big lie. <laughs> The, 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 the fact is, it is true. One, one thing is true, and that is that often when property owners get before a jury in these cases, they are often overcompensated because juries feel very sympathetic to them. The problem is that in, in probably most eminent domain cases, it never gets that far because most property owners give up the moment that the government knocks on the door and says, look, we will yeah, offer you this get, amount and you can go to court. through negotiations because they have leverage to, to we, stall the The process. government knocks on the door and they say, we, we're going to offer you this lowball amount. And the property owner says no. And they say, you're a holdout. And they come after them. And the property owner faces years of litigation and they only have to pay for his attorney because they don't get attorney's fees in these cases. And, and so they're routinely undercompensated but when they get before a jury, they are often overcompensated, and that's bad for the taxpayer. This gentleman right here. Yes, you. All right. Uh, I'm Andrew Langer with the National Federation of Independent Business, um, and I've talked to Elaine about, about this, and I've heard from business owners all over the country. John, you know, you, you brought this up last year, and I thought it was a very interesting point then, when we had the just after Kilo and you were here and we were talking about the, the Kilo decision. And you've raised this point a number of times, this issue of landowners feeling better and, and feeling, you know, they, they've, they, they've escaped something. And thank God for the power of the state who's come in and taken me out of my property. I have never met a property owner like that. I have 600,000 members. Read the article. I, I, I'll read, I'll I'll, I'll read the article. Read the All I know is that when I hear from my members whose property is being taken, they're angry. They're upset because there's something fundamental about that. And they don't need the government to say, hey, your life's going to be better. Because the fact is, you know, they're there because they, they, the, the land is less expensive. They've paid for their land. Some of them, we have members up in, up in College Park who've been moved two and three times. Government's come in and moved them. They bought property on that Route 1 corridor, and government has moved them two or three times. And every time they go through that, it never, Maryland Department of Transportation or whoever's condemning their property, it never quite equals what it costs for them to relocate. And they lose foot traffic and all these other ancillary things. So, I mean, as much as I know you're hearing and you, and you, 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 know, you hear these examples of folks who are much, much happier, all the folks 
bar none that I've heard from on eminent domain, those of who have been victims of it have been very unhappy about it. I think you're making a, a distinction which may be worth pursuing between property owners and businesses. Um, the takings clause provides compensations for people whose property has been taken. A business owner with six months less left on a lease does not necessarily have a pro- property right entitlement. What? <laughs> beyond beyond the six months, right? Well, and, that's, that's, according to, I mean, that's the way the laws are. That's, that's the way the. Sense, but I'm also talking about businesses where they own their building, they own their lot, and they are being. <coughs> so those are two things. But you're right, and this is something that Elaine and I have talked about. That is a distinction. This issue of how do you compensate those who are leasing? Sure, the landlords are going to get compensated. But who's going to pay for the, the person who's renting the business space for, for their relocation costs, uh, the goodwill of the community, et cetera? They're there because the rents are cheaper. So well, I, I, don't dis- I don't dispute what you're saying, but I think you're raising a very narrow technical issue that can be addressed through appropriate uh, amendments to the Relocation Assistance Act. That law was written many years ago. The numbers in that look low to me. Uh, the statutory figures in that bill look l- low to me. But, you know, I'm happy to work with you on something like that if you recognize that once you get compensated for your property interest and once you get compensated for the consequential losses, you've gotten everything, everything you can possibly ask for from the American taxpayer. The, the law has always recognized that land is special and that there are certain values for which monetary compensation is never adequate. All the way in the back. Policy research. Uh, I have a comment on Tim's pointing out the uh, similarity between regulatory takings and eminent domain takings. And uh, perhaps the the movement or the groups who have understood this best uh, have been the environmental community themselves. Uh, it's uh, very instructive to go back to Richard Nixon's Council on Environmental Quality in 1971, right after the Congress created the Council on Environmental Quality. Uh, and the staff there uh, contracted out to produce a very interesting book called The Taking Issue, in which the environmentalists said there is such a massive amount of land in America that we need to acquire for everything we want to do, for the parks we want, the wildlife refuges, the open space, the scenic vistas, I mean, on and on and on, that we could never afford to pay for this. It would bankrupt the country. Therefore, we must at all costs avoid any direct takings, and we must start a massive uh, tidal wave of use of regulatory takings. So we simply tell a landowner, hello, you cannot harvest a single tree on your own tree farm that you planted all the trees or else you'll go to jail. And we must make these regulatory takings so commonplace that people won't think twice about them. They'll think they're just another example of the police power saying you can't drive over 65 miles an hour or something like that on a highway. And we'll use this to take people's land and and their homes and their resources and their crops and their water and so on. And that is what the environmental community has done for 35 years. They learned how to play that game. Uh, John, John, I too was touched by your late devotion to the taxpayer. And... uh, Accordingly, I, I, well, I get it both ways. I, I rely on the taxpayer as my sole and, and principal argument, or I'm a late convert to taxpayer defense. You know? I know. Well, well, the, the, the question I think that RJ is raising is that the environmentalists early on recognize we can't afford all the environmental goods we want. 
Well, sort of in Tahoe Sierra, Justice Stevens, I mean, literally says that. He says if, if we compensated people for the, all the regulatory takings that, that we engage in, because as, as we've heard, there is so many that, that in the current law, we steal so much from so many people so fast that you benefit from it eventually, so therefore you deserve no compensation. And Stevens says we can't afford to pay people for this, therefore we don't have to. There are two issues here. One is whether the payment is, is, a, is a fair payment. And I've explained why, from my view, law and economic principles and empirical research says that a broad compensation requirement wouldn't be fair compensation, but it would be a windfall. But, but the other problem with the argument is it assumes that government is a kind of a rational private actor and, and, that, and that the benefits that accrue to society, and including landowners, are all internalized by government. And government is making this choice about whether or not to pay compensation or whether to reap the benefits of regulatory action. Well, the reality is that government officials don't internalize those benefits in any kind of meaningful economic sense. The only thing that they internalize is the takings awards. And so the, the reality is that a takings compensation system would lead to terribly unbalanced government decision-making in which government wouldn't regulate at all. And if you need any proof positive, you only have to look at Oregon Measure 37, where the experience has been over 3,000 claims have been filed. Over 1,000 have been recognized so far as valid and honored, and not a dime, not a dime of compensation has been paid to anybody. All you've had is deregulation. Now, some people think that's a great thing, and if that's what we're talking about, then we can you know, celebrate the, the fact that the land use regulations in Oregon have been destroyed. But if the principle, as some people pretend, if the principle is fair compensation, that's not what that's not what that agenda is is pursuing. The best thing going for the anti-takings effort across the West is the experience under Measure 37, which has been a complete disaster uh, for the people of Oregon. Well, let me say, I just want, I would like to add two two. Not quick everybody points. believes that. I mean, there are people who say that at last these costs are being taken off budget and put on budget, so that the taxpayers know whether a given regulation is going to be worth it or not. What about the windfall to the government? Is really, you know, we talk about the windfall to the, to the property owner. The fact is when the government eschews using eminent domain and accomplishes the same end through a regulatory taking, it has accomplished a windfall in the form of gaining the use of that property for the public without having to compensate a property owner. See, and, and, and yet we, we hear nothing, we hear about the taxpayers, but we don't hear about what about the, the unfairness of the windfall to the, to, the, to the government. And it's not true that politicians don't internalize the benefits of these kinds of uncompensated regulations. They internalize them in the form of accomplishing public programs without raising taxes, which is their primary purpose. They want to accomplish these programs and still not raise taxes, and so they force the private property owner to bear the cost. This young woman here. Mr. Sandefur, uh, you mentioned a depressingly short list of states with protection against eminent domain. And I myself am from New York, and I know there's probably no chance I'm going to get those protections passed by my state legislator. So I was wondering how individuals such as myself would go about getting protection. Do we go through local governments, county, towns, or do we stay with the courts? Like, what venues would be most appropriate for us to gain protection? Well, uh, you're right. New York practically invented eminent domain abuse uh, in, what, 1824, I think it was. Um, it's not true, however, that New York has not received, uh, has not seen some change to their eminent domain laws. Not long ago, the, uh, the state legislature of New York prohibited a city from condemning an upper-class golf club 
and transforming it into a slightly less upper-class golf club. So the politically influential members of the exclusive golf club were able to lobby their legislators and get them to protect their golf club from eminent domain abuse, which again shows the kinds of perverse incentives that the uh, rent-seeking that is endemic to this situation causes. As for what you should do, uh, courts should be your last resort. Courts have abandoned property owners given almost any chance, with the exception, again, of, of the excellent decision in Ohio, the excellent decision in Michigan, uh, the m- much less excellent decision in Oklahoma. Uh, and state courts are paying a little bit more attention to this. However, if you find out that your city council is going to talk about a declaration of blight, get down to the city council meeting and raise holy hell because that is your best chance to protect your property rights. And if you don't show up in a lot of state laws, including California, if you don't show up at that meeting, you've given up, you've waived your opportunity to protect your private property in a a later court decision. So political action and raising the consciousness of the community is is easily the most important way of protecting your private property, and most effective way of protecting your private property rights. (laughs) Uh, Two things. A question for John. Uh, The first one is, with the case in D.C. that the woman talked about, you talked about how this is a blighted area and, you know, it's just people are wasting the resources. But if it, all these businesses were terrible, people would not shop, shop with them. They would not purchase those goods. So people in the community are, community are using them. And so um, if you're saying it's not used at all, if peop- it's not benefiting the community, then why, people, why do people shop there? And secondly, as a son of a businessman who has a business in the blighted community, and for you to say that um, it's better off for uh, bus- a business owner to take the business and offer him just compensation in the form of monetary value, I think that's just evil and wrong. There's nothing you could compensate for a lifetime of work and hard work trying to raise yourself from the slums of life to owning a business. And the government came along saying, you know, we're better, th- we think we know what's better for you, and we're going to take away your um, personal, personal you know, experiences your personal emotions to your business or wherever, and we're going to give you money. There's no way you could compensate for certain things with monetary values. Thank you. I, th- I think the, um, the, the the challenge in the Skyland Mall is that the um, uh, there are, you have to visit it to sort of get a sense of it. It is it is not a a um, um, not a whole lot of desirable commercial. Um, outlets is the best way I could describe it. And I think the problem is that this is a map of the, of the site in our book. And the problem is you have a, dot, a lot of different owners and a, dot, a lot of different tenants. And I think that there's a, there's a sort of a classic collective active action problem, that they have not been able as a group to figure out a way to get financing and to redevelop the property and to meet the demands of the surrounding area for consumer goods. One of the city's justifications for using eminent domains, and one of the reasons that motivates the city, is that a great many of the people in this area east of the Anacostia River are doing their shopping, their big box shopping, their grocery shopping uh, outside of of the District of Columbia. They're not having the advantage uh, of being able to shop in their neighborhood, and all the associated sales revenues are going outside outside the District of Columbia. Um, So I think that sort of explains the problem. so, I so don't we under, need to, a, wall, I, I, a Walmart. Is that I don't understand the, the issue. Uh, it seems to me if you're in business and you're looking at the bottom line and you're compensated for your business losses, then, then you know that, that seems to me to be the end of the story. I, I'm very sympathetic, on the other hand, to the situation of a, of a homeowner. My, my wife's family 
uh, had a piece of their property taken for a railroad. Now, imagine that, having your property taken for a railroad. That, that goes back a few years, and they're still grousing about it. I understand that people who, who's, whose homestead, whose house is threatened with eminent domain, have a, 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 a personal uh, interest, a, a subjective interest, uh, in the property that may not be adequately compensated by, by compensation. And that's why I think we should make it a very a very sticky process, why I've ad- advocated above-market compensation for those subject to eminent domain, um, why I think the same principle ought to apply to utility takings, to road takings, to all the kinds of takings that the bills that have been moving through Congress exempt entirely from any kind of eminent domain reform. We've got only time for one more question. This lady right here. Family, my parents had property taken, and it was for, it was a constitutional purpose for the expansion of a highway. The amount of money they were offered, however, was not constitutional. It was a very low ball offer. They had to go through the courts to get the offer increased even somewhat. Um, it would, took three rental home properties for them, which was a significant amount of income. Um, but but the question is, and they're in rural Georgia. They're la- large landowners in rural Georgia. So I think that puts them particularly at risk. And now they still have a large piece of land. And they, they've been approached by businesses over the years, but they've never wanted the activity there. So then the state comes in and offers them a very low amount for property that they could have sold for tens of thousands of dollars an acre much earlier. But my question is to Mr. Sandifer, um, you said Georgia now is one of the states that have adopted some laws that protect property owners. Is there, can you expound on that, or is there a source, one source where we can go to find out more about the states who have taken these laws, who have taken these, you know, steps? Yes. Um, I have, I've, I've written an article that analyzes all the laws that have been enacted since Kilo was decided, and that's available on uh, a website called ssrn.com. And if you do a keyword search for my name, uh, you'll find that paper. It's the, the number one on the list. Uh, it's called um, uh, Will Citizens Get Meaningful Eminent Domain Reform? The, the Georgia law, uh, one thing that is unfortunate about the Georgia law, I don't know, unfortunate, but uh, Georgia's law is very protective of property rights, except that Georgia doesn't appear to have really used eminent domain for economic development anyway. So, at least not in the not in the years from 1998 to 2003, which is when the statistics are available. Uh, so it it does it does prohibit the future use of that power. And I'm proud to say Pacific Legal Foundation uh, was was central to to uh, the passage of that law. We testified in in the state legislature about that law. Um, but basically, what it comes down to is whether the citizens believe in private property rights. And Georgia ha- uh, citizens tend to believe more in private property rights than do citizens in more blue states. And so the, the culture there of, of protecting property rights was behind eminent domain reform, just like it was behind not abusing that power to begin with. Uh, and I think really the bottom line that I wanted to, 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 to say here today is this kind of reform has to be a reform in the culture. We can't just talk about eminent domain in this case or that case. We have to talk about the importance of property rights and their location and their reason in the Constitution of the United States. And and I, I strongly encourage you all to, to read books like Richard Pipes' wonderful book, Property and Freedom, uh, and teach these principles about property rights to your neighbors and your friends and anybody who will listen. Because 
really only cultural and social change about the, uh, our attitude to our private property rights can fix this problem. I'm reminded when Professor Echevarria says that we all have these reciprocal obligations to one another, I'm reminded of the line from Frederick Bastia, the French economist, who said, the state is the great fictitious entity by which everyone seeks to live at the expense of everybody else. And that is the attitude that most Americans tend to have. Well, don't take my house, but also don't take away my ability to order my neighbor as to what he can do with his property, because I like doing that. And we have to change that attitude if we're going to really have reform. The other side of this point is that the greatest obstacle to meaningful eminent domain reform is coming from resource industries that have been the strongest proponents of the property rights agenda. The mining and timber industries that supported the property rights agenda when they saw that as a way of promoting an anti-regulatory agenda found that when the eminent domain issue came to the West that it threatened their traditional uses of eminent domain. If you look at the Idaho Constitution, it has a specific provision saying if you're in the mining business, you can use eminent domain whenever and for whatever purpose you want because we love mining in Idaho. Now, there is a measure on the, on the Idaho ballot that purports to reform eminent domain in the state of Idaho. Now, never mind the fact that the legislature has already passed some law that prohibits eminent domain for any economic development purposes. The ballot measure also specifically grandfathers the protected uses in the Idaho Constitution, as well as another resource-intensive uses in, in the state statutes. So the basic property rights kilo measures in, in the West preserve all those established uses uh, of eminent domain for resource industries to take ranchers' properties, uh, to get rights of ways. And I haven't heard anybody from the Pacific Legal Foundation or the Institute for Justice standing up for the property owners who are going to be continue to be threatened uh, by those uses of eminent domain, even if these measures happen to pass. Well, then you haven't read my articles, because I do, I, I do agree very strongly that the, the, one of the biggest obstacles to reform on this issue is that businesses and traditional conservative constituencies tend to be oppose, opponents of eminent domain reform because they benefit from them. It's a very frustrating thing to find people who claim to be in defense of private property rights turning around and saying, well, yeah, but we don't want to go that far, and it's very frustrating. But as Ayn Rand was fond of saying, the greatest enemies of capitalism are often the business businessmen. So. Well, it was James Madison, the author of the Constitution, who said that the defense of private property is the reason we create government in the first place. But during the 20th century, with the rise of the modern regulatory state, uh, we've seen tremendous inroads on the property right. And we've heard this afternoon two fundamentally different views about how to bring about a better world and a better society, one through government, uh, uh, use of feminine domain and government regulation, the other through the private uh, actions uh, rooted in private property. And so it's been a great exchange. And so please join me in thanking our guests today.